The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Go Green Radio, brought to you by Covanta Energy. Reduce, reuse, recycle, rethink renewable energy and energy from waste. This program will help start you thinking about how to protect our world and its important resources. Now here's the host for Go Green Radio, Jill Buck. Welcome to Go Green Radio, everybody. So glad that you could join us. Our topic today is really important. All of us use electricity, and we're going to be talking about this idea of cyber attacks on our power grid and what that might mean to us. You know, Ted Koppel has a brand new book out called Lights Out. And in that book, he asserts that a major cyber attack on America's power grid is not only possible, but likely. And that it would be devastating. And then he goes on further to say that the United States is shockingly unprepared. Today, we're going to be talking with Scott Aronson, and he's the managing director for cyber and physical Physical Security for the Edison Electric Institute, EEI, and we're going to discuss what the electric power industry is doing to protect the nation's power grid. So welcome to Go Green Radio, Scott. I'm so glad to have you on the show. Thank you so much for having me on, Jill. Well, I'd like to begin by having you tell us about EEI, the Edison Electric Institute. What is the mission of that organization and who are the members? Sure. So thanks, Jill. So EEI is the trade association for the nation's investor-owned utilities. That's uh, really the large uh, companies uh, that operate the power grid. Uh, the grid is made up, uh, you may know, uh, of not just investor-owned utilities, but sometimes cooperative systems, municipal systems, there's independent power generators, uh, and so on. But uh, EEI's membership uh, is the investor-owned segment. Uh, and our mission is to do those things uh, that uh, trade associations do. We uh, educate our members, we do advocacy, uh, but increasingly uh, one of the important issues uh, for the sector uh, has been uh, the uh, threat of physical and cyber attacks uh, and organizing ourselves both as investor-owned utilities, but also uh, with our partners in the sector uh, to better prepare for, uh, for uh, threats to the grid. And it's one of those things, you know, the uh, sector doesn't always agree on everything, but because we are operating what is quite literally the world's most complicated machine uh, with thousands of owners and operators, uh, we really have found common cause to work together uh, to protect those systems. So that's what EEI does, and, and that's how we have uh, organized ourselves uh, with our partners in the sector who operate the grid. Very good. And as I mentioned in the intro, Ted Koppel's book, um, Lights Out, paints a pretty grim picture of our nation's readiness for a cyber attack on the power grid. And as we dive into the particulars of what a cyber attack could mean for everyday Americans, I'd like for you to help us understand the role that utility companies play in cybersecurity versus the role of government. What are the various um, components of cybersecurity and who is responsible for what? So it's a really good question. Uh, I guess a couple of things come to mind. Um, 
we, the owners and operators of uh, the nation's electric infrastructure, are really good at operating our infrastructure. It's, it's our job, and we've been doing it for the better part of a century. Um, what we don't have is intelligence gathering capability. What we don't have is a law enforcement responsibility. What we don't have technically is a national security mandate. That said, uh, we understand that we are uh, the electric grid and, and the service we provide is critical to the life, the health, the safety of all Americans, of our national and our economic security. So we have to work in partnership with the government. The government does have uh, all of that expertise, law enforcement uh, and, and intelligence gathering and a standing army and, and, and so on, uh, but the government needs us. Uh, they don't necessarily have the expertise of operating the grid. Um, when it comes to cyber specifically, uh, there is, I guess I'd put it this way, there has been this focus on cyber uh, for probably the better part of the last 10 years. Oh my goodness, we have all of these digital networks that are operating the electric grid and they are vulnerable to attack. We're going to have a cascading blackout that is going to last for, for months and months and months. That's been this, this thinking. Well, Cyber is the new sort of shiny object that everybody has been chasing, but at the end of the day, we operated the grid in a manual way for quite literally decades. Uh, and so while a cyber attack on an operational technology system that operates the grid certainly would make for a bad day, it's not necessarily one that would be catastrophic or, or the 18-month uh, blackout uh, that, that uh, Ted Koppel uh, suggests would is not just likely but inevitable. Um, we would be able to go uh, back to manual operations in a slightly less efficient way, re-engineer the grid uh, during the crisis, uh, and, and at least provide the basic services that need to be provided uh, to protect that life, health, and safety of all Americans. Mm -hmm. You know, Koppel writes that while there are three power grids in the U.S., it would only take a well-designed attack on one of them to cause devastating effects on the nation. Is that true, Scott? And, and if it is, help us understand this in greater detail, because I think a lot of Americans really don't understand the infrastructure that's involved. And it's complicated. I, I understand that. And it's part of why uh, it is so easy to get uh, sort of uh, in, you know, captured or, or in, entranced by some of the movie script scenarios uh, that are out there. Um, there was a report that came out from the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, uh, that's the regulator for the electric utility industry, FERC, uh, a few years back, uh, suggesting that uh, we, we nine substations, there are 45,000 substations in the United States that make up the bulk electric system, uh, but that just nine of them, destroying them, would result in a month-long blackout. Uh, that has since been debunked uh, in, in a lot of ways, uh, and not the least of which was by the Department of Energy. Uh, it was based on a, and I think uh, Ted Koppel's assertion is based on a static model. That is, if you had nine substations and they evaporated right now, yes, absolutely there would be a blackout. But the idea is, just as the threat is dynamic, our response is dynamic. So we, the electric sector, would not just sit there and oh, well, those substations evaporated and it's a blackout, so uh, we're not going to do anything. There would be 
unbelievable efforts to what is effectively known as re-engineering the system uh, and redirecting where uh, the electrons would be flowing. And uh, there's an example uh, out in your neck of the woods, as a matter of fact. Uh, I'm sure we can talk about it uh, during the course of our conversation. Uh, the attack that happened on a substation uh, in Silicon Valley called Metcalf. The Metcalf substation uh, lost every one of its trans well, 17 of its 21 transformers. Uh, you know what? The power in Silicon Valley and the power in San Francisco didn't even blink. And this is a particularly, you know, this is a particularly large substation. So it just shows that there is an extraordinary amount of resilience baked into the electric grid. Well, and that's, you know, great to hear because many of us have experienced power outages. I used to live in southern Illinois where tornadoes and, you know, pretty big storms were the norm. And, you know, when there was a downed power line or there was a a bad storm, uh, you know, the power went out. It could be minutes, could be hours, but it was never days. Um, You know, in, in Koppel's book, he says that a cyber attack on the power grid could mean the power is off for weeks and even months. And, you know, Scott, he's he's getting a lot of play with this book. And this is what he's talking about. And for those of us who have little knowledge about what a cyber attack actually is, help us understand why at least he's saying or there's some understanding out there that this kind of a power outage due to a cyber attack would be so much more difficult to remedy than like the storm-related power outage that many of us are familiar with. So I guess I'll say a couple of things on this. Um, When we talk about how the grid is engineered, when we talk about the standards and and regulatory requirements we have in place, when we talk about the partnerships that we have developed with government, when we talk about the ability to redirect load and re-engineer the system, I'm bored just saying that, and I bet your listeners are too. Uh, And I'm talking about the resilience that is baked into the grid because of all of these wonderful things that electric utility companies do and invest in. and then, so I'm, I'm effectively giving you a, an issue of popular mechanics. And then uh, folks like uh, Mr. Koppel and, and others, and you know, I, I don't want to be mean to Mr. Koppel. I think he, he uh, raises issues that are extraordinarily important. Uh, he uh, takes a topic that needs to be discussed and it needs to be understood better. But what we are dealing with is movie script scenarios. Um, I quite literally testified uh, before a uh, state Senate uh, a couple years back and was asked about whether or not Die Hard 4 uh, was a plausible scenario. So we are literally discussing movie script scenarios as though they are fact. Uh, And it captures the imagination and cyber is unknown and confusing. Uh, And I, you know, I, I can't speak to the veracity of, uh, of Mr. Koppel's assertion that unequivocally there would be uh, a long-term blackout because of a cyber attack. I can simply say that perpetrating a cyber attack of that magnitude is really, really hard. And the people who can do it, near-peer nation-states, don't want to. And the people who might want to don't have the sophistication to do it. So, and we we can, you know, sort of drill down on that uh, throughout the course of the conversation, if you'd like. Well, you know, I think, you know, what I'm going for is in this particular question, you know, when, when we experience a power outage due to a storm, it's things like, you know, 
transmission lines have been knocked down by trees that fell during the storm, things like that. So we understand what happens in a storm, that there's actual physical damage to the transmission lines. But when somebody launches a cyber attack, or if they have or if they did, what are they going after that's different than the kind of damage that would cause a power outage in a storm, let's say? That's that's a great point. So you're exactly right. It, it, you know why the power went out when a tree fell on a line uh, or it, it, the, the live wire is there on the ground and not attached to what it needs to be attached to. Um, with cyber, it is. It's, it's sort of this, this unknown. You know, there's no simple answer to your question. The answer is it depends. There has been uh, a race to automation uh, in the sector over the last uh, 15 years, give or take. Uh, we have smart meters. We have things called synchrophasers. We have automated relays. We have all of these really impressive uh, digital technologies uh, that are pr- improving efficiency uh, of the grid, uh, that are uh, making the uh, grid that much more reliable, to be honest. But uh, with that is a double-edged sword. We are also with every piece of digital equipment, uh, what is called increasing the attack surface. Uh, there are more nodes that are digital that could be uh, affected. And so, like I said, there's not a simple answer to what would they be attacking. The answer is it depends. Um, but going back to my original point, we operated the grid without these technologies um, for the better part of a century, we can and would have to uh, go back to that in, in the event of a cyber incident. I see. Boy, this is really great stuff. We've got to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, we have so much more with Scott Aronson. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%? 43%? Or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Conservation starts with us. Learn about environmental concerns each week when you tune in to Our Wild World with host Ellie Weiss. Our show centers on Africa each week and what's being done to save our wildlife, ecology, and ourselves. However, we'll also discuss what's going on closer to home. And most importantly, we'll let you know what can be done in our own backyards by featuring guest experts and featuring your questions and answers. Listen every Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com.
You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. So glad that you all tuned in. And if you're just joining us, let me catch you up. Our guest today is Scott Aronson, and he's representing EEI, which is the trade association for the major uh, independently owned utility companies in the nation. And we're talking about the cybersecurity of our nation's power grid. And you might think, well, why are we covering that on Go Green Radio? As many of you know who've been listening a while, we cover all sorts of energy issues to, uh, you know, we talk about water and all kinds of environmental protection issues, but energy especially. And and when we're talking about things like renewable energy and that sort of thing, we also have to be concerned with the infrastructure of the energy system. And so we're talking about that today from the perspective of the security of our infrastructure and how that might impact other parts of our lives. You know, Scott, when most people think of power outages, they think in terms of what might happen in their homes or in their workplace if the power went out. But when Ted Koppel talks about a cyber attack having devastating, having a devastating impact on our infrastructure, um, I'm wondering, you know, what exactly does that look like? What functions of our daily society could be compromised by a cyber attack on the power grid? And, and what would that mean? in the lives of everyday Americans. So I would imagine uh, most uh, of your listeners and most Americans have uh, lived through at least some sort of a power outage, uh, a couple minutes, a couple hours, you know, even a couple of days. Uh, I have family in New Jersey who was without power following uh, Superstorm Sandy for, for 14 days. And while uh, it was extraordinarily inconvenient and in some level um, uh, dangerous, uh, it is one of those things that if you've ever been to a third world country, uh, power outage in the afternoon is pretty much a, a matter of course. So I think when you're talking about, you know, with a maximum of about 10 to 14 days, uh, civil society withstands it pretty well, especially if we are communicating uh, with our customers. And, and frankly, because of uh, all of these smartphones and the social media and the ways that we are able to, to communicate, even with power outages, uh, there is a way to sort of get that message out that, that there is an end in sight and people tend to react pretty well. Um, that said, for the companies that I represent, uh, any outage, and I mean any outage, is, is a bad day. And we are always striving to be 100% uh, 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 resilient and 100% uh, reliable. Um, with respect to how that impacts other sectors, you know, the electric grid is often called the most critical of the critical because all the other sectors rely on us. Well, let me tell you this. If we don't have water, we can't generate steam or cool our systems. If we don't have telecommunications, we can't operate. If we don't have transportation and pipelines, we can't move our fuel. If we don't have financial services, we can't trade our product or have access to capital markets. There are a lot of ways to impact the electric grid short of attacking or impacting the electric grid. So we have worked very closely with uh, other interdependent sectors uh, to make sure that the 
uh, coordination across sectors, so kind of east-west across the sectors, and then north-south between industry and government uh, is strong and getting stronger. Uh, and there are a lot of different ways that we do that. Well, and I think that's important to know, that the, the power industry um, is collaborating in that way with other vital sectors. And, you know, I read, and this is a kind of a follow-on to that, I read on EEI's website that the power industry is not waiting for congressional action in order to enhance its cyber defenses. Good move, by the way, <laughs> because congressional action is tough to come by these days um, <laughs> across any sector. Um, talk to us about some of the specific initiatives that the industry is undertaking to guard against cyber attacks. So you're, you're exactly right. And it's not, this isn't the knock on Congress. I think uh, you know, Congress, if we are trying to move at the speed of the adversary, Congress and regulation is not the answer. Uh, really what it needs to do is be industry-led. And so uh, one of the things that we are doing, uh, and I'm privileged to serve as the secretary of the Electricity Subsector Coordinating Council, the ESCC, and this is a group of 30 CEOs. So this has risen to the top of the enterprise of every one of our companies. Uh, they meet three times a year with uh, each other and then with senior government officials from the Department of Energy, the Department of Homeland Security, the White House, the FBI, the intelligence community, uh, the Department of Defense. We all recognize that critical infrastructure, I said it before, that is critical to life, health, and safety is a shared responsibility. So these CEOs who understand that protecting their assets is their, that they own and operate is their responsibility, both from a fiduciary standpoint, if the equipment isn't spinning, we're not making money, but also from a patriotic duty. We are providing a service that is critical to national and economic security. So they meet, and they don't just meet and say, you're doing a heck of a job and, and move on. These leaders are actually setting priorities, uh, creating accountability, providing resources uh, to initiatives that are improving the security posture of the sector and, by extension, the nation. Uh, you know, I, I can go on and on on this, but I'll, I'll give you just a quick flavor they break down into effectively four categories uh, of things that we are doing with the government to improve security. The first is deploying tools and technology. You know, when I, when I give speeches on this, I say, the government's got some pretty cool toys, and we want those on our systems. Uh, so it really is about improving situational awareness. It really is about understanding the things that are happening on our grid uh, and being able to react in, in near real time. The second uh, sort of bucket of items that uh, the Sector Coordinating Council works on is improving the flow of information. And that really means making sure the right people are getting the right information at the right time. Uh, actionable intelligence. So a CEO needs a certain class of information. They, they need, you know, if the, if the chief security officer runs down the hall and says, Mr. or Mrs. CEO, we have a problem, you don't want the CEO saying, who the heck are you? Get out of my office. You want the CEO to have an understanding of what the threats are that are out there uh, and be able to make uh, informed decisions about the best ways to mitigate. Uh, you need operators, button pushers, to have a different class of information, actionable intelligence. Uh, and then, going back to tools and technology, because you're talking about cyber events that quite literally move at the speed of light, you want machine-to-machine -machine information sharing. 
The third place that we're uh, focusing on, uh, we've talked about it already, cross-sector, working with other sectors with which we are interdependent uh, on exercises and, and on uh, uh, mutual preparedness and on ways to leverage each other's resources in the event of an incident. And then the last goes to incident response. You know, if we are talking about security, it's not just about protecting and defending everything. You can't protect everything from everything. So what we have to do is understand that we have to be right 100% of the time. The adversary has to be right once. Given those odds, we have to dedicate some of our resources, not just to the defense, but also to the response and recovery. So again, if you're kind of keeping score at home, tools and technology, flow, flow of information between the government and the industry, working with other sectors, and then uh, responding to incidents when they occur, making sure bad days do not become catastrophic days. Absolutely. Now, I know that you all have some ideas about, you know, even though you're not waiting for Congress to take action, you have some ideas about what cybersecurity legislation should look like. And though you're being proactive, you know, in doing some of your own things, you know, out in front of congressional action, what are some of the industry's priorities when it comes to cybersecurity legislation? You know, Congress does frequently ask, what can we do to help? And to be frank, there are things that Congress can and has done to help. Um, Improving the flow of information. They passed the uh, Cyber Information Sharing Act uh, last year that really is helping uh, incentivize targets of attack. So the owners and operators, with coming forward with uh, details about the incident that affected them for the benefit of the whole. We're all in this together. So things like the Cyber Information Sharing Act are incredibly helpful. Um, Other things that Congress can and is beginning to do, uh, when you're talking about critical infrastructure, one of the things we want to be able to do is understand better the insider threat. You know, so often we look outside of our borders or at uh, criminals who might be doing uh, things to impact us. Well, you know, some of the biggest threats uh, come from within companies uh, because they do have access to a lot of critical infrastructure. And so uh, doing a better job of vetting those people who have access to uh, uh, critical components of the grid uh, is something that without an act of Congress, the FBI simply can't help us with uh, unless there is a specific incident. So we're working to improve our understanding of who has access to our stuff. Uh, and then the last, you know, one of the things that the government is particularly good at, uh, if you look at the, excuse me, the National Lab uh, uh the National Labs, uh, if you look at the uh, Department of Homeland Security Science and Tech Directorate, if you look at some of the advanced research projects uh, and some of the grants that they give to universities, basic research, R&D, really looking at uh, the new tools and technology uh, that can be deployed uh, to improve uh, the security posture of, of critical infrastructure sectors. Let me ask you this, Scott. You know, and a lot of people know about the smart grid. A lot of people are familiar with the idea of smart meters. You know, again, that does, and you mentioned this earlier, open up a new opportunity for hackers or, you know, cyber terrorists to uh, 
maliciously attack the grid. As the power industry is deploying these new technologies to make our grid more reliable, to recreate redundancies that could, um, you know, help us in a power outage situation, what are some of the things that the industry is doing to ensure that the architecture, that the technology that we're putting in, that they're safe from cyber attacks. Is that happening simultaneously to the installation of the smart grid technologies? So I wish I had a slightly better answer on this. Now, uh, the, best, the best approach to security is always to bake it in, not to bolt it on after the fact. But I mentioned earlier there was this rush to automation. Uh, without Much like the development of the Internet on its own, it was never meant to be a secure platform. Well, the smart grid, just, hey, let's get these smart meters out there. They're going to help efficiency. They're going to give us better insight into how we're using electricity. This is great. We probably wanted to be a little bit more uh, cognizant of the security uh, vulnerabilities that were being introduced. Now, that said, we are constantly evolving our systems. We are constantly looking at ways to build in that redundancy. There is, um, you know, I mentioned 45,000 substations in the United States. Uh, there is a lot of excess capacity, uh, for the most part, that you could lose assets around the nation and really not have too much impact to the reliability of the grid. Uh, but it's a constant uh, struggle. It's a constant. Uh, 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 it requires constant investment and vigilance. Uh, that as the grid uh, continues to evolve, and as we bring on more distributed resources uh, with solar panels on people's roofs, uh, more renewable electricity uh, from both uh, community scale solar, uh, but also from wind uh, across the nation, we need to make sure that we are doing it with an eye toward uh, resilience of the grid. Because at the end of the day, uh, our most important responsibility is keeping the lights on. Right. Exactly. Well said, Scott. We're going to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, we have much, much more with Scott Aronson, Aronson and uh, you don't want to miss this. Don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%? 43%? Or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Do the adventures of Indiana Jones leave you curious about this exotic and unusual profession? If so, don't miss Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. 
You'll learn about forensics, ancient civilizations, and human origins. Listen to Dr. Schuldenrein and colleagues discuss their excavations and related archaeological topics, ranging from the unique to the sublime, and yes, even the mundane. Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, live Wednesday, 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Variety. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. Today we're talking about cybersecurity and its impact on our power grid. And our guest today, in case you're just tuning in, is Scott Aronson. He's the Managing Director for Cyber and Physical Security for the Edison Electric Institute, EEI. That's the trade association for all the major uh, power companies out there. And we've been talking about a new book that Ted Koppel has out. It's getting a lot of attention. It's called Lights Out. And in that book, Ted Koppel reports that a former chief scientist of the NSA revealed to him that China and Russia have already penetrated the grid. Scott, what can you tell us about these events and how did the power industry respond? So you you look around the world and um, uh, particularly at uh, what we call near-peer nation states and certainly China and Russia fall into that category. Uh, and you understand that there is uh, extraordinary sophistication uh, of their cyber capabilities. Um, and let me also tell you, the United States has extraordinary sophistication of its cyber capabilities. So in those instances, uh, you're almost going back to a, a Cold War mentality of mutually assured destruction. Uh, John Brennan, the sec, uh, the uh, uh, director of the CIA, uh, used the phrase. I'm going to paraphrase it a little bit. Uh, those who want, to, those who can do things to us, uh, don't want to. Those who want to can't. And I, I think it's important to note that yes, there is something called. It's the, the term of art is advanced persistent threat, uh, and that is uh, those particularly sophisticated. Uh, near-peer nation-states are absolutely uh, targeting critical infrastructure uh, around the world, uh, including in the United States. Uh, but the acting on it uh, is something that is very likely going to be done uh, in concert with an act of war. Uh, so while it is a concern to us, and as a sector, we are organizing ourselves to be able to withstand that advanced persistent threat uh, and to respond and recover as efficiently as possible, uh, that, that's an important point because that becomes a deterrent. If the adversary realizes the attack doesn't have the impact that they want it to, they're going to go someplace else. So it really is incumbent upon the sector, and the sector takes this responsibility seriously to ensure that an incident does not have the intended effect. 
Mm-hmm. You know, in the event that a catastrophic cyber attack occurs, what would happen next? I mean, is there a plan to deal with widespread long-term power outage on the part of a local, state, and government, you know, federal governments? What what happens in case that actually does happen? So this is where a lot of planning is going into effect right now. So. You know, we'll go beyond the response and recovery. I will say that the industry uh, is constantly preparing. We have spare equipment. Uh, we have something that is known as mutual assistance, and you've seen it uh, with, with storms. The affected area, uh, all of the companies from around the country descend on the affected area with crews and linemen and bucket trucks, string the line back up and, and, and restore power. We're trying to do the same thing, and we're, we are building out that same capacity to be able to respond to cyber incidents. Backup equipment, uh, you know, re-engineering the system, going to manual operations, great. Your question is, what if all of that fails? And that really is why our partnership with the government is so important. Now we're talking about what are quite literally existential threats to the United States and continuity of government, continuity of, uh, of, of the operations of the nation uh, is well within the responsibility of the federal government. And I, you know, you, you would have to talk to them to get a better sense of exactly what uh, those, uh, they're called COOP plans, uh, are, are looking like. But I do know that there are a lot of very smart people at FEMA, the White House, the Department of Defense, uh, the National Guard, who give this uh, all of their attention. Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, you know, the effect of something like that would ultimately be felt at the local level. And so my hope, and if I could put a bug in somebody's ear, it would be that someone is working with the U.S. Conference of Mayors because, you know, while FEMA, you know, can do many things, the, the local government and local law enforcement and emergency response teams um, would be the ones who would be helping people on the ground. And so my hope is that they're being cut into the conversation. Um, so I'll respond to that a little bit. Um, we look at partnership with government uh, as not just the, the sector and the federal government, state local, international even, uh, especially among our allies, uh, has been a focus as well. The National Governors Association, uh, the National Conference of Mayors, the big city mayors, uh, the state legislators, state emergency managers are all coming together on this. And I I have, uh, it was the chief information officer of the state of Maryland said, states are the consequence people. And I think that's something that we all have to remember. When something goes wrong, it really is that state and local government uh, that is going to ensure uh, basic uh, life-saving and life-sustaining measures uh, are in place so that we can uh, keep uh, our way of life uh, going. Absolutely. You know, I'm sure that we have a lot of listeners out there saying, well, gosh, you know, what should I do? How should I react to this threat scenario? And in Ted Koppel's book, he gives some examples of, you know, different groups of people and different individuals who are, you know, coming up with their own ways of reacting to this threat. Is it even possible for an everyday American to prepare for an event like this? You know, this this sort of falls outside of my area of expertise, but I can certainly react a little bit. Um, 
you know, uh, Mr. Koppel's book uh, is pretty interesting. Uh, his his general thesis, and I, I happen to be interviewed for his book in a, a chapter called Guardians of the Grid. And uh, while I don't have my Superman G uh, that says uh, Guardians of the Grid yet, uh, it is a responsibility that uh, we take seriously. And so... I don't really let myself uh, think about uh, the really catastrophic what-ifs. But uh, his thesis in his book was effectively that industry doesn't care because they're profit-motivated. Well, I can tell you unequivocally that is untrue, and I've seen it firsthand at the highest levels of the sector. Second, he says, government is incompetent. And I, again, I, I just don't subscribe to that uh, theory. Uh, I think government can always be better. Sector can always be better. Uh, but uh, the level of partnership and coordination uh, at the highest uh, levels of both government and industry show to me that this has got, got the attention of the people that can do something about it, and we are getting better. And then his last point is, so because industry is profit-motivated and doesn't care, and because uh, government is uh, incompetent, your only option as Americans is to go out and buy canned food. And I, again, you know, I, I just sort of disagree with that sentiment. There are very few, and I, I never say none, because in the security business, uh, there is no such thing as impossible, but there are very few scenarios that I can contemplate that result in a extraordinarily long-term blackout. Uh, and the scenarios that I can think of are coupled with what are effectively acts of war. And again, I would sort of suggest that we've got other problems at that point. Yeah. You know, there's a question that I have got to ask you because I used to watch the show 24, Big Fan, Jack Bauer, all that stuff. And um, they even dealt with this idea of EMPs, electromagnetic pulses, man-made EMPs. And, And since then, they've been showing up in movies and TV shows for a few years as a way to disrupt electricity distribution. I want to know from you, Scott, what is the truth about EMPs, and to what degree does the power industry uh, have concern with this type of a threat? So, I'd put it this way. It is one of the potential threats that is out there. Uh, We do not dismiss it, and in fact, uh, the last uh, Sector Coordinating Council meeting uh, with several CEOs, dozens of CEOs and uh, senior government officials, spent a fair amount of time talking about EMP. Uh, Additionally, uh, a group known as the Electric Power Research Institute, uh, which is sort of the research arm of, of the sector, uh, some really smart electrical engineers are looking uh, at uh, EMP uh, from a man-made uh, device. And, and there's a couple of different ways that this can, can come. Uh, there is a um, high-altitude uh, blast from a nuclear weapon. Uh, well, that requires a nuclear weapon, so that makes it, in and of itself, a, a pretty hard thing to perpetrate. Not impossible, but but we're talking about a small group of people that have that capability. Uh, and then you're also talking about directed energy weapons, and these are far more localized. Uh, if you think back, as long as we're talking movie scripts, if you think back, uh, if folks have watched uh, Ocean's Eleven, they black out mm-hmm. the Vegas Strip with what is effectively a directed energy weapon. Um, that's a localized impact uh, and one that is relatively easy to respond to. So uh, I will say this, EPRI, the Electric Power Research Institute, is um, studying very carefully how susceptible are we, in fact, to a high-altitude nuclear weapon? What would it actually do? Um, 
And then rather than getting bogged down, and then then what is the appropriate mitigation? What can we do to actually protect uh, against and respond and recover as as quickly as possible? Um, Rather than getting bogged down in individual scenarios, is it a high-altitude nuke? Is it a directed energy weapon? Is it a combined cyber and physical attack? Is it a tsunami? Whatever it is, what we are looking at, because I think we all can have a failure of imagination, rather than trying to plan for every contingency of every scenario, instead, let's look at what the impact would be from any of these and what are the fundamental things we can do as a sector to be prepared regardless of what the incident looks like. Absolutely. We're going to take a quick break on that, and we're going to be back with more with Scott Aronson. So, folks, don't go away. There's much more Go Green Radio right after this. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information, about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Conservation starts with us. Learn about environmental concerns each week when you tune in to Our Wild World with host Ellie Weiss. Our show centers on Africa each week and what's being done to save our wildlife, ecology, and ourselves. However, we'll also discuss what's going on closer to home. And most importantly, we'll let you know what can be done in our own backyards by featuring guest experts and featuring your questions and answers. Listen every Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. Scott, I want to talk to you about physical security of the grid and its infrastructure. We've been talking about cybersecurity, but you're also involved with physical security. And we referenced this in the first segment of the show, but there was an incident a few years ago that really shocked a lot of people. There was a a lone individual who cut some wires and uh, was shooting at a substation in California and was able to knock out the power. And I'm wondering, since that incident, what has the industry done to, to address the physical security, particularly of the distribution side of the power grid? Yeah, so that uh, that incident, the, the Metcalf incident, uh, really was, 
uh, an eye-opening experience. We, we'd had people who had uh, uh, breached substations before. You get hunters who had a bad day and will take a pot shot at a transformer. You have copper thieves. But this was truly destructive. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, it took out 17 of the 21 large transformers uh, that were in that uh, in that uh, uh, substation. Now, as I mentioned, the power didn't blink in Silicon Valley or in San Francisco, uh, but it still was an opportunity to look at the physical security of, of these very soft targets. There are 45,000 of them around the United States. They're in cities. They are in rural areas. They are up in mountains, down in valleys. They're everywhere. And you can't really protect them with guns, guards, and gates. Uh, it's just cost prohibitive to have uh, that level of security around each. So what we have done is identified those uh, of the 45,000 uh, that are most critical. Because look, if you have 45,000 priorities, you have zero priorities. So we have prioritized the ones that, that need to be secure. Uh, and we have uh, developed actually a mandatory uh, regulatory standards. So there's now regulation uh, around what security Security at these most critical substations needs to look like, and you know they, I, I won't go into details, obviously, but uh, you're, you're seeing bigger perimeters, you're seeing uh, better situational awareness, uh, you are also seeing. Uh, um, uh, you know, things like uh, shot spotter technology, which is all around the cities uh, that uh, lets you know that somebody's doing trying to do something so that we can get local law enforcement uh, there. And the other part about this is working closely with local law enforcement. When you are responding to uh, a substation, this isn't just some vandals or some kids doing something stupid. This is something that you're responding to critical infrastructure, and local law enforcement needs to be made uh, aware of that. And we are. We have great examples of companies that are working with uh, their sheriff's offices and their police departments to sensitize them to uh, the, uh, the threats to these, uh, these pieces of infrastructure. And is the same thing going on around the generation side of the grid? You know, I mean, everybody knows that if you try to visit a nuclear power plant, you're going to meet some big guys with big guns. But what about natural gas fired, you know, utility scale generation sites? Are they coordinating similarly with local law enforcement? They certainly are, and you're exactly right about nuclear for obvious reasons. Uh, but uh, you know, if you've really tried to get uh, uh, close to uh, any uh, critical generating facility, now again, there's lots of generation facilities around the country, some of which are more critical than others. Uh, but uh, it's not as simple as just walking up uh, and uh, being able to, uh, you know, for example, drop a bomb inside of a, uh, a gas-fired uh, power plant. Uh, it's going to take some doing. So. Security, physical security in particular, is uh, a. It's always been a focus of this industry, but I think given the understanding of the world that we live in, uh, it certainly has increased as we recognize that the United States critical infrastructure is absolutely a target of attack. Mm-hmm. You know, we see with other disaster preparedness, you know. Uh, agencies, they practice, you know, even hospitals practice for a mass casualty event. Is there any way for the power industry to practice for emergency responses to large-scale cyber or physical attacks? Oh, oh my word, yes. Uh, we, <laughs> we, we practice, practice, practice. And, uh, you know, it's, there's an old Eisenhower quote. I never get it exactly right, but it's basically, you know, uh, plans are useless, but planning is everything. And, and really, we are constantly evolving uh, our planning processes 
some uh, a couple members of my team were just down uh, at uh, Florida Power and Light for their annual storm drill, hurricane drill. Uh, Pacific Gas and Electric will be uh, conducting an earthquake drill uh, next month. Uh, the industry comes together uh, every two years in something called Grid X. Uh, we've done uh, three of them now. Grid X three was this past November. Grid X four will be uh, in November of 2017. These are opportunities for the entire sector to come together in practice, and that's just the electric sector. Then there are, uh, we will be doing an exercise, for example, with the uh, financial sector, uh, who has profound interdependencies with us uh, later this summer. So there are examples of of how we work uh, together to practice, practice, practice uh, for all sorts of contingencies uh, all across the sector. What are some of the strategies, Scott, that EEI members are using to both educate the public about this issue and instill trust amongst their customers? Well, it certainly starts with conversations like this one, Jill. Uh, And I I think it's important. I think... um, you know, I'll be testifying uh, actually with uh, Mr. Koppel in the Senate Homeland Security uh, Committee next week. Uh, there are any number of uh, venues where we are changing the discussion where I, I mentioned it before we've got there are movie script scenarios out there that are capturing the imagination of the American public and while I would never say any of these things are impossible. I think they deserve some context. So the first part is helping people understand that the electric sector is not asleep at the switch uh, and just you know ambivalent to uh, the potential impacts to the infrastructure that we own and operate. That's the first part. The second is really helping people understand what they can do to prepare. And you know, I, I joked about you know go buy canned food uh, was uh, effectively uh, Mr. Koppel's suggestion. I think we need to understand that every American ultimately is responsible for themselves and understanding that there are threats out there that may require you to take care of you and your family for a short period of time. Uh, once we start getting out, you know, 14 days, uh, then we're talking about uh, a more massive government response. But to the extent that uh, the American public understands that what we have is uh, is infrastructure that is vulnerable to cyber, physical attacks, natural disasters, uh, that the industry is absolutely working its tail off to prepare for these things, uh, but that occasionally we will not succeed, but that we are on, we are on it when it comes to response. Uh, I think telling people that ahead of time makes sure that the hysteria is tamped down uh, when, if and when it actually happens. And, and so there really is this constant dialogue with our customers, this constant dialogue with policymakers, this constant dialogue with the American public uh, that uh, certainly we are doing everything we can to prevent these things from happening, but at some point we will need to respond and recover, and, and the American public needs to know uh, that uh, we, are. we are. We are planning for it, we are practicing, and we are constantly improving. You know, one of the things I've noticed over eight years of, of hosting Go Green Radio is that, you know, when we're, we talk about various emergency scenarios, the, the time that we need to uh, take care of ourselves 
is increasing. Uh, so, you know, early on in the show, we talked about, you know, we talked to some folks about uh, being prepared for food security issues, and they said, be prepared for three days. Uh, earlier this year, we had folks from FEMA on talking about the threats that are associated with El Nino, and they said, be ready for seven days. And now, you know, today we're hearing, be ready for 14 days. And I think it's really important for our listeners to know that, um, you know, this is the case, that, that we need to have some built-in resiliency of our own, and that the government actually does have some recommendations for that on the, their website. I believe it's ready.gov, um, and, and that's something that I've noticed over time, that this period uh, that we need to be ready uh, is increasing every time we, we talk about some of these emergencies. In the final 30 seconds that we have left in the show, what final thoughts would you like to leave with our listeners, Scott? Uh, you know, I, I think it's, it's building on what you just said. There is uh, a responsibility of the American public to, of course, take care of itself, but there's also a responsibility of the owners and operators uh, of critical infrastructure to protect and defend the infrastructure that is critical to the life, health, and safety of Americans. And the other part of this is there is a government responsibility, and I am so proud of the government industry partnership that has grown up around securing critical infrastructure and around uh, developing capability to respond and recover so that when that bad day comes, it's not a 14-day outage. It's a three-day outage. And people, you know, lights and candles, have a romantic dinner. Nine months later, a bunch of uh, babies are born and the power is back on and American way of life uh, is, is, is back the way it was supposed to be. Well, thanks for joining us, Scott, and thanks to our listeners for joining us as well. We'll be here same time, same place next week with more Go Green Radio. And until then, have a wonderful week and do something in your life to go green. Did you get some terrific ideas from today's show? Please join us for more next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time. It's Go Green Radio with Jill Buck here on Voice America. Go Green Radio is proudly sponsored by Covanta Energy, a leader in providing renewable energy solutions for a cleaner world. Visit www.covantaenergy.com for more information. We'll see you here next week.